Welcome again to the Kind Mess podcast. You're here with uh, Mike and Jad, as always, discussing all things to do with the inevitable ups and downs in life and how we can respond to those ups and downs with kindness and compassion. We're joined today by Steph Gadsden, naturopath, mindset coach, functional medicine practitioner, Buteko breathing train practitioner, Klinghart art practitioner, uh, author in a number of journals, and a fantastic and amazing practitioner who I work with at Merge Health. Welcome to the show, Steph. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Steph, um, first of all, I'm super interested in that breathing and I'm still unclear of, of how it's pronounced. It's a little embarrassing. Me, me too. When my clients ask me how to spell it, I'm like, uh, just go to the website. I think it's Buteco. As a former asthma guy, I'm super interested in that. Talk me through the, the, the basics of this breathing method because as our listeners will know, I'm an absolute geek for breathing stuff. So, yes, please enlighten me. Um, so the idea is that it helps to increase your CO2 tolerance, so the gas that we breathe out. Um, and the theory goes, I guess, um, that because most of us um, often breathe through our mouth um, and we breathe through our mouth a lot of the time, much more than we should, and especially at nighttime when we're sleeping, um, that uh, that actually changes your airway structure and changes, um, I guess, your capacity to relax smooth muscle, which would be really important to help with asthma. Um, and so you think about when you're having an asthma attack or when you're uh, wheezy, what are you doing? You're usually breathing through your mouth and you're breathing harder and faster. Um, and so what Buteco breathing is trying to teach you to do is basically breathe through your nose more consistently. So all the time. So at nighttime, especially. So they have a method where you um, tape your mouth at nighttime to encourage nasal breathing all the time. And it can be quite profound, actually, and um, work very quickly because it's literally changing, I guess, the the respiratory system and your um, uh, tolerance of CO2, which helps to relax smooth muscle, calm down your sympathetic nervous system, um, and also increase nitric oxide, which dilates blood vessels, which is really helpful also for asthma. That's awesome. So it's funny, in previous episodes, we've spoken to um, a wonderful practitioner of the Wim Hof breathing yes. method. It sounds like I could have used a little bit of this when I was homeschooling my kids, Steph. Like, <laughs> Yeah, totally. Yeah, we can all breathe through our nose better. Like, We can all learn to breathe better. And there's so many breathing practices. Um, like even when we were doing the training recently um, and we were doing some um, Buteco breathing within like 
two days and I, I'm not a mouth breather by any means. I don't have any asthma or respiratory illness. Um, and I just noticed that, you know, I just wasn't breathing through my nose as much as I thought I was. Like even when I'm talking to clients, well, often like I'll do what I'm doing now and I'll go, you know, you'll breathe through your mouth. Um, but actually we need to pause and breathe through our nose because we're triggering that sympathetic or fight or flight response all the time when we're doing that. Yes, we are, mm. particularly during homeschooling. Particularly and I shall move on. <laughs> I know how you feel. <laughs> oh, my, oh, my Lord. Um, isn't it a funny thing, Steph? Isn't it a funny thing that one of the most, you'd have to say one of the most basic and potentially impactful things that we could do societally we seem to have lost connection with the actual practice of it i mean professionally what's your experience of that because we say so often just breathe breathe to me is is a little bit like the other word that we say we we say just concentrate and we don't teach people how to focus or use mindfulness I find a similar thing with breathing. We'll say to someone, just calm down and just breathe. But we don't exactly know how to do it anymore, do we? No, we've definitely forgotten how to do it. And I think when we say breathe, that often um, gets people to breathe deeply through their mouth. So they go and they take this big breath, but it doesn't necessarily actually help them and it doesn't necessarily actually help them calm down. And so it's actually gentle breathing and learning to stimulate that diaphragm muscle by slow and low breathing, not these like big, deep breaths that we need to take. That's not necessarily going to be helpful if someone's got anxiety or feeling stressed or overwhelmed. It's slowing it down is really important. I'm often amazed, Steph. When um, I've been meditating for a while and get really relaxed, I'm always surprised by just how kind of little I need to breathe. There's sort of even people that try to breathe well, I think, like you were saying, even if they're breathing through the nose, sometimes try to breathe in like even too much. But it's about kind of allowing your body to sort of do what it naturally kind of does. And I've noticed in, in the past when I was much more of a mouth breather, if I tried to breathe through my nose, I'd instantly get panicky. But if I slowly sort of did it and just took little breaths through the nose and then the rest of my mouth, I could ease into it. But yeah, sometimes I'm scared myself if I'm like really relaxed or really meditating and I'm breathing through my nose, just how long the pauses can be between between breaths. It's really amazing. Yes, yeah. And that's that's one um, way that we measure in Buteco, I guess, what people's uh, carbon dioxide or uh, CO2 in, uh, tolerance is, is by measuring, well, what is their pause? You know, how long can they pause for? without feeling that, you know, urgency like you talked about, Jad, you know, some people can feel quite uncomfortable slowing down their breath. They feel like they're not getting enough oxygen. But the key is, is when you do slow it down and you do increase that tolerance of CO2, you actually release more oxygen from the blood bound to hemoglobin, so into your muscles and into your tissues, which is quite phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. I had first-hand experience earlier this year. Um, I've had, you know, in the in the past, panic attacks, but never had that full-blown. Um, uh, what do you call it when um, hyperventilation episode? 
And I, I honestly thought I was having a stroke when it happened and ended up in emergency and whatnot. And it just showed to me the incredible power of the breath, but also how if you... If, you, if you're overdoing it, it can go completely wrong. Now, I wasn't consciously sort of over-breathing at the time and there were some other things going on, but the, the impact that, you know, my muscles clamped up, my whole body went into spasms, I actually started blacking out, a friend had to carry me. It was, it was very dramatic, but it, it was also terrifying, really terrifying. Mm. Yeah, it can be. It can be very terrifying, yeah, because you have that total physical, I guess, experience. Um, you know, your hands closing over, like you said, you, you pass out um, and just really uh, from how you're breathing. Mm, yeah. And then the reverse of that is true too from the sound of things as well, that if you can, you can use the breath then as a tool to, to calm yourself and to influence your physiology. Yeah, definitely. Tell us a bit more, Steph, about um, how you kind of, got into sort of mindfulness and um the field you're kind of in and if you like perhaps sharing um sharing a story of you know some aspect of how these sorts of practices you you know you have in your toolkit have been useful for you um yeah well they're they're useful and i think you build upon them and you would be or both of you would be um aware of this i guess over your lifetime you face many different challenges and you sort of feel like oh yeah I got it I'm using mindfulness I'm using meditation and um yeah it's really helping and it's helped me and I'm feeling good and then you know you hit another hurdle and you're like oh I need to learn a little bit more here so um I was thinking about this before I jumped on tonight and I was thinking about well there's so many um I guess episodes in my life where I've called on these techniques to sort of help get me through um, and I would say that it, not any one of them has been easy and at not any stage have I mastered it or um, become an expert at it, I guess. It's consistently been a journey and um, with every hurdle, um, I think I've learned something new, which is quite uh, incredible to look back on, but not so easy mm. at the time. Mm. Mm. But. Yeah, but where it all started, I guess, was uh, when I was um, a teenager. Um, I was um, very um, strong in sports, so I was a tennis player. Like, that was my goal to be, uh, to win the Australian Open. You know, I was an extremely competitive person and um, was in the state synchronized swimming team and I used to train all the time and then I was a really good student and, you know, pushed myself very hard in all directions to be I guess the best that's what I thought I needed to be as a teenager and um, I fell really unwell with chronic fatigue syndrome at the age of 16 and that sort of really changed the directory of my life um, and it was with uh, being unwell with that I guess uh, illness or state of health for uh, 10 years that um, got me into meditation and mindfulness there was a heap of resistance though there in the beginning. You know, I really didn't want to sit with this stuff. You know, I didn't want to face it. Um, but eventually it was super helpful. Steph, I'm interested um, in terms of the resistance. It's wonderful that you bring that up. And I'm also interested in the fact that you've straight out of the gate just gone, look, this stuff isn't easy. 
these are things that we love to explore because part of this podcast is we know that invariably within the contract in walking around in a corporeal form that we call us, we get suffering. It's just a thing with the deal. Can you talk about your relationship to that resistance? Because I know personally with me, the resistance is always still there in some form. It's kind of perhaps my relationship to it shifts. And, and I'm wondering if that was the case for you. Yeah, definitely. I think um, in the beginning, you know, I was told to well focus on my breath or do basic meditation from a very young age, especially when I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, and the resistance then was that, well, all these medical doctors and um, other practitioners have told me that chronic fatigue syndrome, um, that it's all in my head, either I'm a hypochondriac or, you know, I'm not actually well, or no, you've got depression, or you've got some psychiatric illness, or you've got some problem that's with your mind. And so then when people were telling me to stop and breathe, I was like, well, you know, it's not my mind, you know, I'm perfectly fine. Um, you know, if I didn't have this illness, I would be still, you know, doing a million things, achieving, you know, burning myself to the ground. <laughs> you know, I'd still be doing all these things. And so when you're telling me to stop and breathe, like how is that gonna how is that gonna help me? You're just telling me that I'm manifesting this illness when I know it's a physical illness. And I think back then there was this complete disconnect for me about what was uh, the mind, what was the body, and how it was all connected. Um, and as I went on with my journey with um, health, I think that was a big fight for me, you know, fighting against that, um, you know, this is a made-up illness, it's, a, it's all in your head. So I was fighting against that and finding the, I guess, the biochemical and the biological reasons for my illness, which are also there. Um, but it wasn't until I actually let go of that fight or let go of that mentality of um, pushing through or, uh, you know, trying to fight and overcome this illness. It was only when I started to actually recognize that the mind, the body, you know, the environment, your spiritual world, all of that is connected and that you actually have to surrender to move forward was when I got well. So. Um, there was so much, so much resistance, you know. Um, I was never someone who could sit in a meditation or literally sit still for five or ten minutes without wanting to, you know, run, jump or do something. So um, it was very challenging in the beginning. I'm also curious, like someone who was achieving the things that you were, because it sounds like you were competing at quite a high level. I don't know. I should warn you, I often make up words. There's something oxymoronic <laughs> about asking someone who's, who's been striving so much to achieve so much to then surrender. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think I was asked to do that at that time. It's really on reflection. Like I remember um, it was actually another achievement that I was trying to accomplish with chronic fatigue, <laughs> I was trying to um, go and sit the GAMSAT to be a medical doctor. And um, I don't know why I was trying to do that at that time. That was just wow. <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was at that time and I'm like, this isn't working. Like I just keep, I keep falling apart. I'm just constantly 
unwell. Like I just, you know, I push and then I fall apart and then I push harder and I fall apart. And everything that I learned um, from being an athlete or, um, you know, it's always about um, pushing your body to the limit, you know, trying to get that next step. But then I sort of also realized was that when I played tennis at the best of my ability or when I was in the pool and I was really enjoying it, there wasn't that sense of pushing, you know, it was more a sense of freedom and peace and stillness that probably when I was achieving the most and it was really in training or what my coaches had built into me that you had to go harder and faster to get better or, you know, be sore or wake up earlier, you know, <laughs> and I, I just, I just realized like I couldn't do it anymore. You know, it was going to, it was literally going to kill me if I kept going. Um, and so I, I stopped and I um, changed my belief quite quickly um, from wanting to be what I had before or wanting to get back what I had lost. You know, there was a, a big grief process of I've lost my ability to perform as an athlete. I've lost my ability to be a tennis player. I've lost my ability to attend school. I've lost all this stuff and I just want to get it back, you know, and you're telling me to sit down and breathe. How is that going to get it back? And then I realized that, well, it's not about gaining what I've got back. It's about um, moving forward um, and creating something new. And that's where the surrendering came in. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting as a long-term Taoist and part-time Buddhist, particularly in Taoism, surrender is not a, a technique that's associated with moving backwards. Timely retreat is the art of the warrior. And I was thinking when we were talking about breathing before, sometimes learning to breathe is about learning to create space. Sometimes we're, we're trying to just slow down. People have heard me ad nauseum when I teach, talk about we're human doings, not human beings. Um, and, and I'm curious because I'm, I'm guessing that all of this made you a better healer, if I can use that word, holding up talking fingers, listeners, has made you a better healer and a better clinician and a better practitioner and across the board. When did that become apparent to you? And do you still, does that, does that influence your practice today? The, the fact that you have suffered, does that influence how you approach your clients? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I think that really drives me to be there for my clients. Um, I see a lot of my clients within myself, um, you know, primarily in clinical practice. I work with people who have chronic fatigue syndrome or have um, diagnosed mental illness. And a lot of them are going through that transition of, you know, wanting to get back what they've lost you know, grieving for their former life, wanting to return back. If I can only just get back to, you know, what I was like in 2000 and, uh, you know, 20 or 2019, you know, um, that was my best. But if I can just get to Monday, you know, I'm going to be better. I'll have more time to, to do these things. So I guess that mindset of always um, wanting to either go back or to go forward um, I can see really keeps people stuck in illness um, and attached to an illness or a diagnosis. Um, and 
like I said before, a big part of my recovery was not fighting the illness anymore. And it was actually just, you know, being at peace with it and allowing it to be there. Um, And I think a lot of people find that very difficult because they think surrendering means giving in Mm. or giving up. And it's not the case. And so I try to coach my clients that, you know, um, it's not about giving in or giving up, but it's accepting that this is your experience right now. Um, It will be impermanent. It is going to change with time. It's probably changing from one minute to the next. Um, And we don't need to fight this. We actually need to choose the path of least resistance so you can transition into wellness. And there's some parallels there all the way through with your wise words there, Steph, about the essence of mindfulness. It's it's not about rumination or speculation. And mindfulness is also not it's not a, a a weakness. It's not it's not saying it's okay for everything to be. It's just about being with what is occurring. And so that that always makes me curious when we're on the big M word. How has mindfulness sort of manifest itself through your journey through illness, recovery, uh, practice? Like what are some common threads for you through, th- through those times with mindfulness? Yeah, so I use a variety of different practices over my lifetime and they're always sort of changing and adapting and uh, moving. Awesome. Um, which is, mm. uh, yeah, I find helpful. Um, I'm trained in MICBT, which is mindfulness uh, with cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, And that's based in Vipassana meditation, which I find really useful um, for just really getting to able to sit in stillness and feel the body. I notice in myself and I notice in a lot of my clients that people are disconnected from feeling. And so you ask people how they're feeling and they have no idea. They have no idea. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They have no idea that they're stressed or um that they might feel anxious or that um there be, might be tension in the body or like they literally are completely disconnected. So I find that a really helpful uh meditation to just feel and get reconnected with the body and move away, I guess, from the mind. Not that you're not going to have any thoughts or not that you're not going to think, like that's not what we're trying to achieve. But just being present and noticing the body, I find is super helpful. I, um, I actually did the course with you when, I, when in the early days of me starting at, at Merge, at Merge Health, and I remember you um, walking us through a body scan and and I'd, I'd done um, MCBT before and mindful self-compassion by that stage. But like you're saying, there's always these unfolding levels of getting to know and accepting reality as it is. And I remember going through the body scan and noticing that there was always this kind of spot between my lower back and kind of shoulders that I could just, I had no sensation in. And I just would just sort of hover around there thinking, mm, I can't feel anything. And then I'd move up and wait for the next bit and just no sensation. If I touched it with my hand, I probably could feel it, but I couldn't tune into that area. And I remember you saying just 
just feel around the edges of that. Like just stay on the, the edge of where you think you might be able to feel something. And also just to notice that experience of not feeling. And it was really profound because eventually I started to then notice some really, really subtle sensations in my spine. And from that, when I started working with an exercise physiologist and going to the gym to address some other health problems, I realized so much of the tension I was carrying was in that area. I was so disassociated from it, so out of touch with that part of my body that it was causing me problems in other areas. And um, yeah, I was always really thankful eh, for that experience and and also, um, you know, just astounded that there was this thing in me that is always there, an essential part of my body that I had no experience of, that I had no connection to. I was so caught up in the thinking self and not the kind of being self. Yeah. That's awesome, Jad. Um, thank you for sharing that again with me. I forgot about that experience. And that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to share that with clients. That's so cool. That is so cool because it is, you know, people people are completely disconnected. You know, you think about if you have gut issues or any sort of health issue, um, you know, we just, we don't feel the body. We don't sit there and check in with ourselves. We think about the body. We think this is mm. how we're feeling, yes, yeah. but it's, we're not yeah. necessarily telling ourselves the truth. That's such an important point. I love that we think about the body. And often when you ask how someone is, they're almost responding with how they think they should be, you know, a judgment about their experience. Oh, I'm really tired or I'm really good or whatever, rather than, and, and every time I've done like a, a simple breath meditation or a body scan or progressive muscle relaxation, the first thing most people say who have never done this, oh, I didn't realize how tense I was or, oh, gosh, I've, I've had aching shoulders all day and I just wasn't even aware of that. And it's like, how can you release that tension if you're not even noticing that it's there? Totally. Yes, that's it. I think stress is the big one, though. I, I think most oh. people will just deny that they're stressed, you know, they might not feel mentally or cognitively stressed. And I guess I was one of those people when I was younger, you know, I was a high capacity person and I mm. didn't necessarily know that I was stressed, um, but my body was under significant stress. Otherwise I wouldn't have fallen ill with CFS and being, you know, not being able to care for myself. My body was screaming at me probably for years, but I didn't recognize it. Um, so I think, yeah, it's just, it's just so important that we get back in touch with how we're feeling. Mm -hmm. Something that Jad and I enjoy exploring on this podcast is prosecuting absurdities, using mindfulness to, to compassionately prod at ideas and ideations and false beliefs, stuff that's just been socialized. And, and the big word that we play around with is how things are normalized. To me, that's a fascinating thing. That's been at the core of some of my practice is, is to look at how things get normalized, how, for example, it's really not uncommon to ask someone how they are and they kind of look at you as if you just asked for 50 bucks, you know, what, what do you mean? You know, it's a, it's a funny thing, isn't it? And I just feel like stress has been normalized and it's almost when you ask people to stop. I mean, I've found, found it within my teaching practice Almost the first thing I have to deal with is they're like, well, why? Or come on, hurry up. Like, how long till enlightenment? Um, yeah. I need to hover. Where's Nirvana? Mm. 
So I guess where else the other word that we're interested in here is the big C word. Where in your experience, personally, professionally, does compassion fit in, and and how has that shifted your your practice? Yeah, so I think that compassion has probably been the most challenging aspect of my practice. Definitely, <laughs> um, it's yeah. it's you know you can listen to a meditation, you can start to feel the body, but then to actually be accepting and compassionate to yourself while you're feeling the body and realizing that you've been disconnected for so many years is, is a big challenge. Um, and I'm, I'm still, still practicing that, I guess, every day. And, and for me, um, it's, you know, I have such a big, I guess, achievement part of my personality and I, I have no idea where that ca- came from, you know. Um, I, I look back <laughs> in my life and my childhood and I've had, you know, a pretty great life. There's been no major issues. And I go, why, why is there always this need to um, prove um, myself or to reach that next limit? And, and why do I have to take on all these things at once when I know um, logically it's not going to be helpful or I'm going to face burnout for the you know hundredth time in my life and (laughs) and that's where that's where the compassion comes in to go well hang on you know um you know what are you searching for and why does it have to be external you know why can't you look a little bit deeper and just focus on the internal before you're searching to you know make yourself feel whatever way by trying to achieve something externally. Yeah, and this is the other big one, isn't it? The I think, again, the normalisation of seeking validation externally. I know I spent the majority of my time doing that. Um, I just... Just for whatever reason, and again, I had a pretty, I had a reasonable cakewalk myself, but um, I just had this within me that I wasn't okay unless other people told me I was okay. And so, for me personally, that's where the compassion sits and is constantly oiling my joints because I, I'm, uh, you know, I, the mindfulness stuff makes a lot of sense to me, and I've been doing it for so long that it's kind of become a default setting. But as Jad and I have taught people, that I've personally found the mindfulness was um, was wonderful to be to be with what was occurring, but the compassion was really good for the witness. Yes, so it could sort of hold my experience. Yeah, it is. A, it is an interesting community or society that we live in, isn't it? At the moment, it's um, and yourself, Steph, as a parent, I, I've got two young children that I kind of pull my hair out, sort of thinking, seeking validation externally through these little black mirrors and these portals seems to be only on the rise. Mm. What What are your thoughts? How do we shift that? I mean, for our listeners who are no doubt at home, going, "Yep." What can we do to perhaps curb our search for validation externally? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's little steps, you know, and even on that, that the word search, like often we're searching for that next thing, aren't we? We're searching for that next, well, you know, guru to follow or that next meditation that's going to get us to that next stage of our life to be better or to, to win or perform more or to or to work faster or be more efficient or what whatever it is. And I think it's actually, you know, doing the opposite and slowing down and 
being appreciative of yourself. You know, the same love that you show to your child, showing to yourself and knowing that you can do it because if you're giving that love and that compassion and uh, to someone else, it's coming from somewhere. You didn't just manifest it out of thin air. Like if you can actually give that to someone else, you're, you can give that to yourself. Um, and often what I'll do with clients who have real difficulty feeling um, and especially feeling with their heart um, and recognizing and allowing, I guess, love and compassion. And love is a big one, you know, love to come in, to, to feel worthy of love. Um, I'll get them to imagine them giving to someone else. And, and they can often do that really, really easily. They can close their eyes and imagine, you know, sharing these gifts of love and compassion with a friend or a child or, um, you know, whoever it is, a partner, and it makes them feel really good. And so then what I ask them to do is then just flip it and go, okay, so you're giving, I want you to receive the same feeling that you hope for them. So that same feeling that you're hoping for to influence their being or their world or their emotional state, I want you to receive that. And then they start understanding, ah, I'm already doing it. I'm already feeling it because I'm giving it to someone else. Um, and it can be a game changer, that exercise. So little steps and realizing that, you know, you're doing it probably every day. We just need to slow down and, and see it. Perhaps the invitation is to gradually include yourself in that circle of practice. That stuff that you wish for others, just come to the edge of the circle. Just come and yes. just come on the edge and just see if you can beam some of that goodness towards yourself. I'm interested in you now as a practitioner. Do you have like a preferred tool that you use now? Because when I was reading the stuff that you do, it was like, wow. I mean, clearly the chronic fatigue did not stop you. <laughs> That's a big resume. Yeah. This is such a silly question. How do you differentiate between what you do? Um, well, I guess I'd sit with the person and even though there might be a lot of qualifications on my website, I think that's probably just feeding into my achievement ego. Um, <laughs> and, and <laughs> oh, damn it. I shouldn't have brought it up. I'm sorry. <laughs> and um, no, but, you know, I, I guess I do search and, and I love learning and I, I love um, exploring new techniques to help people because um, we are all so different and not one thing is going to stick with everyone. You know, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. But I do find that most of the time it is the, the basics, it is the, the foundations of, um, you know, obviously I'm also a naturopath, so we're focusing, like Jad, focusing on, you know, eating right, good nutrition, sleep, all the basics, you know, um, sleep, exercise, movement. Um, and then I guess when people are doing those foundations, I think that's when you can really go, all right, well, let's, let's address the elephant in the room and let's look at this, the stress that you don't think exists and how that's, you know, impacting your health and how can we harness that stress and actually um, utilize it um, um, to help you rather than to harm you. Um, and then people go, okay, I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to look at that and go, well, you know, how is the stress keeping me stuck? 
how is my lack of, you know, self-love or self-compassion or being overly critical keeping me stuck in this place? Um, most of the time people come to see us and they really want to get well. It's not like they're coming to, you know, just tick a box. They really want to help themselves. Um, they just need guidance, I guess, to to uncover what it is for them that's that's keeping them in that place. So to answer your question, I guess I use all those tools and more with with every client and and take them on a journey um, and and go on that journey with them, I guess to discover you know what what is it going to be for them that's going to be really beneficial. But most of the time, it's facing it, and uh, and however you get to face it, you know whether that's with sitting with mindfulness or whether that's with self compassion or whether that's with um, um, buteco breathing or whatever it is, um, it's facing it. Um, accepting it, uh, surrendering to it, and then being able to move through it. What's the difference between a practitioner who – so two practitioners who have the same academic qualifications, and I did did listen to your answer. It just – I formulated this question as as you were talking. Um, You seem to have a real calling to – I'm going to use the word help – I'm I'm guessing that might be because you've experienced suffering. You know what that's like. I mean, what do you think is the difference between a, pra- a practitioner who has had it had been with suffering, gone through um, a bumpy ride, as as opposed to one that potentially it's all academic. You don't have to answer the question <laughs> in case there's any clinicians that you work with that are all dandy, but uh, do you know what I'm getting at? I, I, don't, I guess I'm I don't, I'm edging yeah. towards the no mud, no lotus idea, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think I've met many practitioners who have gone into the helping profession who haven't experienced some form of suffering themselves or some form of challenge that has driven them into wanting to help people. And that might not be... Um, personal for them like they might have not experienced it themselves but they might have seen uh, a relative or a family member and I don't necessarily think you have to um, have gone through a health challenge to be a great practitioner Um, but you definitely have to have empathy for people's suffering and to understand it on on some level so and coming from just a textbook or a academic journal, like that's not, uh, you know, it informs our decision. But um, a big part of our practice is, um, you know, is clinical practice is being with the client, you know, understanding from from their perspective and from their world what's uh, triggering them, what's keeping them unwell, what's their story. Um, and how do we start shifting that story um, together to move forward? So, yeah, does that answer your question? It sure does. And it, and it just was banging around in my mind because I was just wondering if someone who had gone through chronic fatigue syndrome would, you know, say to you back in the day, oh, it's all in your head. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. No, no, definitely not. And I think um, – yeah, I probably wasn't seeking out the right health practitioners back then, but there wasn't a lot known about it. Um, and I do feel like that's how people connect with me because 
especially with some of these syndrome conditions like chronic fatigue syndrome or 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 even mental health problems it's really it's really difficult to understand what it feels like like some of the symptoms are just you know bizarre and they all sort of cluster together and they don't make any sense and of course you do sound crazy but it, it's actually yeah it's difficult and so most clients will say to me oh you know I'm, I'm grateful that you sort of get me I you understand what how I'm feeling because you've experienced it even though my health story would be very different um you know one chronic fatigue syndrome patient to the next is going to experience different symptoms but I think it's just an understanding of that you know you might look well but you feel you know like you're about to die sort of thing um and if you haven't understood that it's difficult to read it in a textbook well i think you know it makes sense steph that you'd be work so well with things like chronic fatigue complex long-standing health issues and mental health issues because quite often they're invisible illnesses you know Mm. well invisible illnesses to the untrained eye i think someone who's experienced that kind of pain can kind of almost can almost pick it as they walk in the room but but for most people um, who haven't gone through it, they'll be sort of, you know, they, there's a misunderstanding about what that, that person's lived experience is like who's, who's living with a chronic, invisible sort of illness. Yeah, definitely. What would you say, Steph, based on your experiences and all your clinical work and outstanding kind of education around all of this and, and, and clinical work too, what's, what's your sort of bigger mission with all of this? How is kind of this informed your kind of uh, bigger vision of what you want to uh, to do with your uh, life or purpose? I guess ultimately I want everyone to know um, no matter what they're really suffering with, especially when it's these invisible illnesses, that there is hope um, and that people, there that you can be well um, and you can move from, I guess, just being stuck in an illness to actually reclaiming, or I, sh- I shouldn't necessarily say reclaiming because that's really looking at the past, but I guess creating is really what I want to say, creating a life that you want and it doesn't have to necessarily be limited by the, the label that you have been given. And yes, it won't be easy and yes, there'll be ups and downs and life is not going to be perfect. And, you know, I, I think I was just mentioning to Jad the other day, recently I had a uh, quite a acute stress that derailed me surprisingly um and um I really had to you know go back to some of the teachings that I've learned over the years and really anchor back in those again to to move forward again and there will be those bumps you know we will face stresses we will face loss we will face challenges but it doesn't have to keep you in this sort of box that Um, There's a limitation on what you can and what you can give and what you can be and what you can share and how you can feel. And that's what I want people to know. I want people to know that, yeah, there is hope um, that you can create a life that you a life that you want. Fantastic. Such an inspiring um, message. I love that. I love that. How can people find out a bit 
more about you, Steph. If people are interested in exploring some of the applications of these skills or if there's anything else you kind of want to um, share, wh- how can people find out more about you and what you do? Um, so um, I run and direct a practice where I work with yourself, Jad, which is awesome, um, at Merge Health. So you can check us out at um, mergehealth.com.au and I see clients um, weekly um, um, and so you can book in via that. And that's probably the best way to access me. Uh, Yeah. Awesome. Well, it's been wonderful to have you on the show and to hear some of um, your stories of of personal suffering and the amazing ways, you know, that drive and enthusiasm, I think, has really directed you along all sorts of different pathways and uh, to, to, to reach a, you know, a healthier state of being. And it's just wonderful and inspiring to hear how you've used that to uh, inform how you practice and sharing that with the world. So thank you for, for being on the show. Thanks, guys. That was awesome. It was a great chat. Thank you so much. And I always want to personally applaud people who will model any form of vulnerability and make that sort of stuff safe too, because that's kind of a big thing that we want to do with this podcast. So, and as, as always, please, Jad, could we have Steph back again? Like Steph, could you please come back again? That'd be so awesome. I'd love to. That'd be awesome. It was fun. Yeah. It was good fun. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Well, uh, listen in for further episodes. We're on Spotify and all your kind of um, podcasty platforms. Uh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just say podcasty platforms? Oh, that's awesome. We're, we're, we're still trying to nail the intro and outro, but it's oh, not a skill either of us seem to dude, have. <laughs> it's podcasty platforms forever. Podcasty platforms <laughs> will I be like the, the sign I like out. that. I must look at your podcasty <laughs> platforms. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit.